Welcome to this Ropes and Gray podcast. I'm Michael Littenberg, and I'm a partner in the New York office of Ropes and Gray. I'm global head of our ESG, CSR, and business and human rights practice. Uh, so our topic for today is COSO's recently released supplemental guidance on achieving effective internal control over sustainability reporting. Since its release at the end of March, there's just been tremendous interest in the guidance in the ESG community. The guidance is very timely, given recently adopted pending and proposed sustainability reporting developments, among others. These include the proposed SEC climate risk disclosure rules, the EU corporate sustainability reporting directive, and the related European sustainability reporting standards, and also uh, the International Sustainability Standards Board standards. Uh, aside from new regulatory disclosures, companies also are seeking to bring more rigor to their voluntary ESG disclosures, both to meet market expectations and then also to mitigate evolving litigation and enforcement risk. So to unpack the guidance, I am joined by three of its principal authors today. Doug Heilman is a consultant with 40 plus years experience in ESG, including operations, corporate compliance, and three years on the Volkswagen Monitor team. Doug's experience with COSO dates to his tenure at PwC at the outset of Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, Doug was the ESG specialist on the author team. Uh, Sherry Litton is Director of Corporate Reporting Research and Thought Leadership at IMA. Her work focuses on financial reporting and sustainable business information uh, in management. Sherry is a former practicing litigator in the area of corporate governance and securities fraud. And then last but not least, Jeff Thompson is the recently retired CEO of the Global Institute of Management Accountants and a former COSO board member. He currently serves as a senior strategic advisor to boards and firms, most recently competent boards, uh, whose mission is to educate and certify future fit board members around the world. Uh, welcome, Doug, Jeff, and Sherry. Um, so first, I want to start off with an introduction to the COSO framework, since many of our listeners may not be that familiar with the framework. And Jeff, we'll start with you. So what exactly is COSO and what is the COSO framework and what's its purpose? Sure. Thank you, Michael. And it's a pleasure and honor to be here. A uh, very, very important topic for uh, not just businesses around the world, but for uh, the entire ecosystem. And we'll be talking about the nature of that as we go forward. So COSO is the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations of the Treadway Commission. It was formed back in the mid-1980s, uh, essentially by, by Congress, by the U.S. Congress, to help address the escalating savings and loan uh, scandals and frauds that were occurring in the U.S. at the time. So it was formed uh, in, in 1985, um, five sponsoring organizations uh, the original five and current five are the American Accounting Association, or AAA, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, or AICPA, the Financial Executives International, FBI, Institute of Internal Auditors, IIA, and last but not least, the Institute of Management Accountants, or IMA. And essentially what these organizations were tasked with initially was to develop a uh, globally usable uh, internal control framework. So in 1992, the Internal Control Integrated Framework was developed, or ICIF, uh, for global application to improve um, the application of internal control around the world. Uh, by the way, um, we'll talk later about financial versus non-financial. Uh, fast forward to um, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. 
uh, in the United States, 2002-2003 timeframe. Uh, the COSO Internal Control Integrated Framework, or ICIF, is essentially used by 100% of the U.S. publicly listed companies to comply with Section 404 of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, essentially the internal control attestation. So the COSO framework um, became heavily used um, uh, from that point forward. And then as national jurisdictions around the world begin to incorporate the COSO internal control integrated framework into their national standards, uh, the COSO framework became uh, even more and more globalized. We'll talk a little bit later about the changes in 2013 as it relates to non-financial reporting, but there's also one other COSO framework that's separate but related, and that's a broader, more strategic ERM or enterprise risk management framework. Uh, that framework was uh, delivered to the market in 2004 and subsequently updated in 2017. But the main focus here today is the internal control integrated framework launched in 1992, updated in 2013. And so specific to sustainability information, Sherry, why is internal control over sustainability information important? It's also a pleasure to be here with my co-authors. Um, so when we think about financial reporting and the rules and regulations, at least in the States, we look to Sarbanes-Oxley and that instituted a range of uh, governmental rules uh, with the formation of the PCOAOB, which emphasizes this idea of controls. For those who are not in the accounting or financial reporting world, we use the term control. It's kind of a holdover from the way accountancy used to be described. A more modern term that I often use is oversight, governance, processes. And in looking to financial reporting, when Sarbanes-Oxley became the law of the land, they needed a framework or standards. How are we going to determine whether controls are effective? And so many practitioners, it became the gold standard to look to the COSO internal control framework. As Jeff has mentioned, as things evolved, and we have this whole new sense of uh, needing to report or demands for information on various aspects of corporate sustainability, we're looking to this framework and say, look, this can be adapted. This can be applied to these new types of corporate reporting. Two things to think about. So one is that regulatory external disclosure to investors, to the market and the importance of uh, compliance with uh, rules, regulations as they evolve. But again, the idea of controls oversight is more about the achieving of corporate purpose and goals as much as it is about reporting and disclosure. That is to say that good reporting depends on the strength of activities and so sometimes in speaking to practitioners, we say, oh, are you talking about ESG reporting or the actual enterprise-wide activities to bring about sustainability? I think it's both. Obviously, it's to use the know-how of 
quality information from corporate entity out to the market, but it's also a framework to guide how we think about achieving corporate purpose, meeting objectives, and doing so in a way that's efficient and meets the interests and the demands and the expectations of a whole range of corporate stakeholders. So you mentioned investors before, um, you know, internal control over reporting is often thought of as a public company topic by many people. Um, uh, is internal control over sustainability reporting only relevant for public companies? I suspect you're going to say it has much broader applicability based on your prior remarks. But but even so, if, if it's relevant to private companies, it's is it still only relevant to large companies or is this something for all companies? Yeah, this is really important because we think about reporting in public companies and meeting those regulatory demands and compliance, but we're seeing something different happen in the sustainability reporting world. First, there is pressure even outside of regulation for competition and opportunity, and that is for both public and private companies of every size. So whether or not um, a company is within the regulatory um, oversight per se, their competitors may be reporting anyway. There may be decisions to be made. So sometimes we talk about materiality, which has an investor focus and a very specific legal terminology, but we also talk about decision usefulness, well, what are my competitors doing? Are they changing their business model? This is important because not all corporate information goes to the market. In some cases, particularly what we're observing is the area of supply chain. So a large public company might be making disclosures or statements of expectations or estimations about when they might be net zero or their goals and progress towards certain sustainability metrics, then who are they going to turn to? Their suppliers, their value chain. And so that creates a need for good controls, good information. This is a risk area that people are telling us they are concerned about, how sustainability reporting and information, think about scope two, scope three in particular, relies on information that comes from an outside entity. And so we need to think about how are we going to be comfortable in reporting or incorporating or relying on this third-party data? Other things that we're hearing is the competition for capital in the private sector. So, um, for example, we're hearing about green lending or ESG-linked uh, bonds, for example. So that means the lender, not the equity markets, are saying, you know what, we'll give you a lower interest rate, or if you meet certain certain targets, we'll lower the interest rate. Could be a private company, but that creates a compliance responsibility because meeting those targets can become part of the um the covenants the prom within the lending agreement, and now you have a new compliance. We're hearing the same thing in the insurance market. 
that certain insurers are willing to lower premiums for private companies on um, taking ESG-related steps. I even heard of a director's and author's insurance policy where they were given a lower premium for ESG. And then companies that may be private now, but may be headed for uh, the public market in the near future. It's good to get this started now. And we've actually heard um, where private equity uh, or investors are saying, you know what, if that company, even if private is paying attention to ESG or sustainability activities and information, and the information is good, we have more trust and confidence in this company and we're willing to work with them as they grow and mature and perhaps aim for the public market. So, so it sounds like from everything you're saying, so this is not just a topic for accountants and auditors. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, I would absolutely agree that, and I'll hand this to Doug, who's um, not from the accounting world, um, but we're observing that in order for sustainability, and the quality information that goes into reporting, it takes the breaking of silos within a company. We hear this all the time where everyone is involved, investor relations and human resources for the human capital disclosures, operations, facilities, and of course, the information sharing with um, investors and with rating agencies. So Doug, you might have some more to add to that. Thanks for uh, the ability to participate here today. Um, Michael, you mentioned the topic of private companies. Um, private companies have important stakeholders called customers, and they have important stakeholders called employees and prospective employees. And as Sherry mentioned, they may um, eventually wish to go public or they may be acquired by a public company and the expectation is that private companies just need to be in this game and have sustainability reporting, sustainability programs on relevant topics and issues. And if they ignore it completely, by the time it's expected, there just isn't time to, to put a program together. The COSO framework offers a handy way to, to organize and structure it. Um, and absolutely, as someone who has grown up in the ESG side of things and for 20 some years been very involved with the accounting industry, it really is for everybody. And this document is especially useful for people who do not come from accounting and finance. There are people who know internal controls as COSO sets it forth. There are people who don't. But all these other groups, whether it's environmental, safety, operations, utilities, HR, procurement, they, there's some kind of management framework, whether it's ISO or something else. They all follow the kind of plan, do, check, act cycle. So they just use different terms. Um, we often hear the term silos, as Sherry mentioned. Um, I, I prefer to think of them as areas of competence. People get hired into operations or HR because that's their distinctive competence and, and that's their job. And for many of these folks, sustainability is a is an add-on or it's a hobby or something else. And they they they're overwhelmed. They they just need effective um, mechanisms or tools to show up and participate in things like cross-functional teams 
and to do things to um, improve sustainability performance and sustainability reporting. And COSO offers an ideal framework to um, foster that collaboration. So, Jeff, you briefly hit on this in your remarks before, but, you know, before we dive into the 2023 supplemental guidance, you know, for context, what what are the major frameworks and guidance uh, that have been put out by COSO over the years? From an internal control perspective, the COSO Internal Control Integrated Framework uh, launched to the global marketplace in 1992, updated in 2013, and then the related but separate COSO Enterprise Risk Management Framework launched in 2004, updated in 2017. But in the meantime, COSO over the years has put out uh, either supplemental or interpretive guidance, as well as thought leadership papers. Uh, for example, uh, just a few weeks after we put out the COSO um, guidance we're talking about here on sustainability reporting, COSO uh, along with the ACFE, the uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, uh, put out an update to their fraud risk management guide. Uh, so that was COSO in conjunction with the ACFE, and that was a significant body of work, of course, focused on fraud risk management. Uh, COSO has also put out thought leader papers relating to AI, blockchain, uh, integrated reporting, uh, and the list goes on and on because Quite frankly, if an organization is interested in a connected, integrated uh, ecosystem approach to business, uh, if the organization is interested in um, a forward-looking view uh, of business uh, from an integrated perspective, then COSO has an awful lot to offer. So we're now going to shift over to the supplemental guidance. Uh, as I noted earlier, the supplemental guidance was released at the end of March. Uh, Jeff, did the COSO framework apply to sustainability reporting before then, or is that something that's new for 2023? Well, one could argue <laughs> that the uh, the original COSO framework actually applied to all forms of objectives. However, uh, it was made very clear in the 2013 update to the original 92 framework that essentially the COSO uh, framework apply to all forms of objectives and all forms of reporting. So financial reporting and non-financial reporting, operations, compliance, et cetera. Uh, so for example, if organizations were using, say, the balanced scorecard to holistically manage its business, keep it in control, manage risk, create long-term value, uh, the COSO framework uh, certainly as of 2013, had a role to play. Um, but it was broadly captured as non-financial objectives, right? Which is pretty, pretty broad and, and wide. And that's why, you know, fast forward beyond 2013, we uh, decided to go beyond that broad category of COSO applying to non-financial uh, performance and non-financial objectives, Michael. There was a 2017 study, I, I know, that discussed the COSO framework in the context of sustainability reporting. So how does the 2023 guidance differ from or expand on that earlier study? Sure, sure. So, and yes, you're right. In 2017, uh, I co-authored a, um, uh, I'd say somewhat similar, but perhaps a first uh, attempt, if you will, at applying the COSO framework to this type of data. Uh, one thing is consistent between 2017, 2023, Sherry hit on the keywords, 
the key word in the guidance is not COSO. It's not even internal control. I would argue it's trust and confidence. Given that we're in a multi-stakeholder environment beyond shareholders, uh, it is critically important given the nature of this data and the number of people and organizations in the value chain that touch it, that we provide a level of assurance, trust, and confidence in this type of data. So 2017, uh, Bob Hers, myself, Brad Monterio, who carry forward are also authors on the 2023, took a, a, an attempt at that point in time to um, apply the COSO framework uh, to the various uh, levels of uh, non-financial reporting. Um, you know, we had many cases, we had uh, components and principles. Uh, I'm proud to say with the additional uh, leadership and diversity on our author team from Sherry and Doug in particular, who brought so much more to the table in terms of this multi-stakeholder uh, environment, uh, we really raised our game. And maybe that guidance in 2017 was a little bit um, before its time, given where we were with standards and the alphabet soup of organizations and standards and, and, and even focus and attention by the regulators, let alone in the U.S. So um, uh, proud of the original work, but this uh, this latest work in 2023, we really think will make a difference and how does internal control over sustainability reporting differ or how is it the same as internal control over financial reporting? Well, yeah, let me start with the um, with the differences, Michael. Um, and I think we've touched on them just a little bit. Uh, for one thing, the value chain, one could argue, is expanded uh, with sustainability reporting and sustainable business management relative to financial reporting. Doug and Cherry just described some of that. And this is actually a good thing for uh, a multi-stakeholder environment where you know, internal control is not just a finance and accounting thing. It's a, a business thing. Internal control, simply put, is good for business. Everyone in the organization has a role to play. In fact, the regulators are suggesting that even your customers uh, and suppliers have a role to play with scope three. So the opportunity to create a, a interconnected system here is great, but also it's a, it's a bit of a challenge. Now, the CFO team, the accountants, the finance professionals can certainly be the facilitators or the conveners, but everyone in the value chain has a role in good internal control and good enterprise risk management. Another primary difference, if you will, uh, that we'll be hitting on a little bit later is the nature of the data is different. Uh, it tends to be more qualitative. It tends to be more unstructured. It tends to be measured and modeled differently because of that qualitative, unstructured, estimated nature, which also raises the bar and the expectation on internal control. In terms of similarities, the core competencies are very, very similar and can be leveraged from the finance and accounting world uh, and even the governance world build in these competencies, don't bolt them on, whether it's strategic planning, governance, risk, and compliance, uh, monitoring, um, et cetera, et cetera. So competencies can certainly be leveraged, but as, as Doug likes to say, you know, we have an opportunity here to teach internal control to those who are outside of finance and accounting 
And we have the opportunity to teach ESG, the climate, the science to those who are in finance and accounting so they can be more effective business partners and have that broader environmental context. So the COSO framework consists of five components encompassing 17 principles. And th that sounds complicated and daunting to implement. Sherry, is that the case? I mean, how should a user get started with all this? So I would suggest that one thing we do in the introductory section of the publication is show the framework working as sort of a cycle. And it always comes back to purpose and objectives, why the organization exists for its stakeholders, what it's attempting to do, and what is the information flow that relates to meeting those purposes and objectives. And if you think about it that way, those five components are extremely logical and they connect to each other. And then they break down into those 17 principles. So for example, we're starting with a commitment to ethics and purpose that gets everything in motion. And Jeff referenced the enterprise risk management, the ERM framework, and that's where it connects into internal control. So we look at the world as an organization, we look at our risks, where we're headed, why our stakeholders are on board, contributing to our organization, translates into objectives, financial objectives, operational objectives, and now sustainable business objectives as part of that. Well, what are the risks to meeting those objectives? And what control processes can we put in place to mitigate those risks? And then how we communicate and evaluate that system. It is a cycle. And if you start looking at those principles, one thing that will become clear is how much they are interrelated, how your objectives relate to your risks, to the things that a company does to mitigate them. And as Jeff said, it is enterprise wide. It gets everyone speaking and moving efficiently with good information towards those results. So I would say that one of the key words in the title of the framework itself is integrated. And that is absolutely the case in working with them. To your point, the document does look kind of long and intimidating, but but it's really not. Um, the way it's structured, it, it facilitates bite-sized pieces that I think can be very digestible. There are three main sections. The, the first section is an introduction to ESG and an introduction to COSO and the Internal Controls Integrated Framework. And that the structure of that speaks to people who know internal controls and those who don't, who know from come at it from the ESG side. So that's helpful context. And when I encourage people to read it, I said, begin with that, but don't get bogged down in it. The middle section is really where the magic happens, where um, we dutifully march right through all the 17 principles with the points of focus and perspectives. The structure of that, I think, is also elegant, that the people know internal controls will recognize the principles and points of focus, and then migrate into things that are sustainability relevant and see how it applies. For those who come at it from the sustainability side of the equation, I encourage in that middle section to start at the bottom and read up. For each principle, start at the things that are sustainability relevant. It will look so familiar. And when you go back to the top of the section, 
and look at the principles and points of focus, oh, that's what we're talking about. It's a really good bridge between folks who know sustainability and folks who know internal controls. And the final section is just um, pointers and tips and takeaways and suggestions. And that should really get everybody onto the to same page, um, figuratively and literally. So it's really full of bite-sized chunks and, and there's something in it for everyone. You know, you mentioned bite-sized chunks. Sherry mentioned, you know, kind of thinking this as a cycle and thinking of the pieces as being interrelated. Um, so is the frameworks used for sustainability reporting all or nothing? In other words, does a user need to address all five components and 17 principles at the same time, or can they take a phased approach? It's hard to avoid the notion that because there are you know, these five components and 17 principles, and we haven't even talked about the points of focus, <laughs> that it could appear to be a, a compliance checklist as opposed to, as Sherry and Doug said, part of a broader ecosystem, governance, risk, and compliance, strategic planning, purpose, et cetera, which is really, as Sherry keyed on the word integrated. Now, COSO does define... Um, you know, what, is it, what does it mean to have an effective system of internal control over, say, financial reporting? And essentially, COSO gives a lot of opportunity for organizations to kind of scale this to their own uh, purposes. But basically, COSO says you have an effective system of internal control when the principles are present and functioning. And so, you know, that sounds like kind of a low bar, but it's actually a pretty high bar. Um, but it also allows for flexibility and applicability, including in especially smaller private companies uh, who want to be credible and competing for capital and premiums uh, for being sustainable, as Shari indicated, but perhaps can't create the, you know, this super sophisticated ERP systems or whatnot. But no, I mean, it, it really is not an all or nothing approach, but it is. So it, it is principles based. Um, to be sure. So, so principles-based, so it sounds like then the framework and the guidance, they're, they're not prescriptive in their approach to sustainability reporting. There's flexibility right. for Sherry. Right. That's the short Yeah, answer. I I, yeah. I would agree with that. And the, in the publication, what we do, as Doug had said, yes, we look at the um, structure and the language of the 2013 internal control framework and we it indeed interpret it that's what we do is say okay how does this principle how do these points of focus as they were expressed in the 2013 framework apply to this new accelerating changing world of sustainability or ESG and those are key right because if we're in a changing accelerating world it's not a place for prescriptive guidance. And so what we really aim to do here is, again, as Doug had mentioned is, we, after looking at the original language and interpreting, we add a lot of what we called insights in the publication. And those are based on our research, our interviews, a review of live sustainability reports that companies have issued, what's happening in proxy statements with respect to the boards and board structures. So we looked to the world and said, okay, here's how we make it relevant. So in saying that to a broad audience of people, as again, as Doug said, 
with sustainability background or finance and accounting background or legal background or operations. We've made it accessible to everyone. They'll see their roles. And we set out intentionally to make it a document for further collaboration and a, a meeting of different disciplines so they can actually communicate with each other to go forward. So yes, very much principles-based, interpretive, and flexible, so that even companies at every level of maturity can pick this up and say, gee, I hadn't thought about that, or yes, that's where we're going, or this is most relevant to what's happening on our organization and what our stakeholders are asking. And are the framework and the guidance only relevant for reporting? So, for example, what if a user only wants to use the control environment and the risk assessment components? First of all, the answer is no. It's it's not only uh, applicable for external reporting. Now, that's where COSO might become best known, um, certainly in external financial reporting with Sarbanes-Oxley, and now with the uh, regulations coming down from the SEC and the ISSB on climate, you know, sometimes you get typecast, to use a Hollywood term, as uh, being only use- usable for one particular purpose. But COSO, uh, the COSO frameworks in general are applicable to internal and external, kind of like a two by two matrix, internal and external, financial and non-financial uh, reporting and decision making. For example, if you're developing a strategy and trying to track a, that strategy with internal metrics, both uh, customer data and financial data, uh, partner data, you want to control that data. Uh, you want to make sure the decisions you're making for your investors, for your customers are smart decisions. So COSO absolutely applies not only to reporting, but also to decision making not only to financial business information, but of course, to sustainable business information as well. Michael, I'd like to jump in here, if I may, on can you pick and choose part of the COSO framework? Can you just use the control environment? You know, in the author group used the term porous a lot. I think that's a a really good term that um, many of the components, um, you, you can't just do one. They all are interactive with each other. We've seen in the press uh, dangers of companies making grand pronouncements. Um, we we stand for integrity, or we're committed to our employees, or we're committed to the environment. Whatever it is, if you set that tone, you have to follow through on it. In in my experience, coming from the sustainability side, and if an environmental group, a procurement group, operations group, whatever. Once they start looking at things and once they start um, looking at the control framework, once you really dig into it and apply the framework, you can see some gaps, you can see some inefficiencies. You might see in different business units or departments, we're using five different approaches to technology, to putting things together, and there's opportunity for consolidation. So besides what applying this for more robust and reliable data and information for the external reporting, a lot of the real value of applying the internal controls framework is to get a holistic view and to improve the effectiveness and efficiency of how the organization operates. And as Sherry mentioned, to align all of that to the organization's objectives. 
So sustainability is evolving rapidly. Um, is, is more guidance expected or forthcoming? There are so many different disciplines and professionals from different perspectives. So we at IMA are so excited to be taking this even further. First, we're considering some deeper dive workshops into the publication itself, including a, you know executive education because as I like to say, we all came from some other discipline, people who are involved in sustainability. It's it's rather young and new. So we're coming from different perspectives and different uh, functions. Focusing on management accountants or corporate uh, accounting and finance professionals, as we do at IMA, we're actually looking at the publication and taking a little bit deeper dive at some of the aspects that the report raises that speak to the specific competencies of of our constituents. First, as Jeff had mentioned earlier, this process of estimating and expectations of the future scenarios and modeling, well, that is what we would call for our constituents FP&A, planning and analysis. So that's one. Um, Controls itself building processes and systems and whether they're effective. Well, that's our folks. They are absolutely experts in that. And how you apply that to that question of third-party data and getting comfort with systems or using technology as data flows from one organization to another entity up and down the supply chain and how we capture and use that. So we're, as I say, taking a little bit closer look into that Um, academics. Um, We're hearing from professors who are saying to us, you know, we never incorporated this kind of material into our curriculum. It's time for us to become educated ourselves so we can do so. And um, another thing that IMA is doing that I'm really excited about is to start building bridges and information sharing on direction with people in other professions and other discipline. And as I said, break, breaking those silos and having that uh, multi-talent community to uh, move forward. So this report is indeed leading us to much further and exciting opportunities. All right, well, I look forward to seeing those. So, um, so we've talked about the application of the guidance generally. And for the last major component of our discussion today, I want to spend some time discussing the application of the COSO framework and the guidance to some specific types of sustainability disclosures. Um, First, uh, do the framework and the guidance apply equally to mandatory and voluntary sustainability disclosures, or are those addressed differently? Michael, that's one of my favorite questions, and, and the short answer is yes, it applies to everything. It's intended, as Jeff said, to be topic neutral. Um, so, so it's very elegant in that way that you can apply the principles to everything. There, there are different types of sustainability reporting. There's different channels for sustainability reporting, and you know, external reporting includes garden variety compliance that many of us are, have grown up with. If you think about how the typical compliance obligation has, has traditionally come about, there's a new law, there's a new regulation, it comes in, there's an internal process, what's required, how do we do it? And a lot of compliance involves external reporting to regulatory authorities. 
Um, a lot of compliance requirements over the years have expanded in scope and gone outside the part of the organizations that it controls from a financial perspective. We've seen that in the EU's RAS and REACH and Conflict Minerals and, and Scope 3 is getting a, a lot of press right now, but we've seen that before. Are a lot of reporting channels that are not getting, in my view, enough airtime. There's external reporting that is public, but not directly to the capital markets, such as uh, CDP is one example for carbon reporting. We have modules for water and, and supply chain. And one reporting channel that doesn't get nearly enough press is B2B reporting. This data leaves the company and other stakeholders are using it, but it is not necessarily public reporting. And I would suggest there are two groups of that. Um, I like to categorize them as the analysts who obtain data and information and scour what's public and produce output that the capital markets use. That's not compliance necessarily, but, but I would suggest that the analyst community exerts considerable soft power in terms of what is expected on sustainability reporting and the fact that that data and information must be decision useful, as the term Sherry mentioned, we hear a lot. And another category is, is garden variety B2B reporting. Business partners, notably customers, are asking for sustainability data and information, and they're using that information to determine who's in their supply chain. So when it, when it comes to risk, we think of compliance, I would say traditionally, what's the risk of a fine or a penalty or enforcement? If the sustainability reporting is, is not complete, is not correct, is not responsive to a customer request, the risk there is you can lose top line sales. The organizations have, have invested a lot of en energy into getting those customers and you hate to lose them. So. The, these requests come in with different scopes and different topics and maybe different reporting periods, and it all goes back to the same data and information. How do organizations map the right data to be fit for purpose? It all comes back to internal controls. And that's where I really think this document will help organizations that are confronted with this uh, increasingly dizzying array of requests for sustainability reporting. So you noted that the guidance is topic neutral. So, so that means it applies equally to, to climate, to diversity, equity, and inclusion, supply chain governance, and, and other sorts of disclosures? That's right. It can be adapted and applied to be fit for any purpose. And what about double materiality? Uh, so does the framework and guidance apply to impact materiality or only apply to financial materiality? When we drafted this, and indeed looking at the framework itself, we don't prescribe or suggest any part of an organization's reporting agenda. We say the goal is to consider what your reporting agenda should be. So I was at a... a an event I was presenting on the paper recently and someone from audience raised her hand and said, can we use this with GRI? And I said, of course you can use it with GRI and TCFD and ISSB because we don't make that decision for you. We say, think about your purpose, your mission, your objectives, 
And then you come up with your reporting agenda and follow from there. So one thing, it can work with single materiality, double materiality, or financial materiality, as well as one that I'd like to add to this, which is decision usefulness, which kind of gets lost in that whole discussion of single versus double materiality is management and board of directors, they are stakeholders and they are users. So it helps with that part of the process as well. And uh, forward-looking information such as net zero or other sustainability targets, uh, are the framework and guidance fit for that purpose as well? Well, absolutely. This is another key area that has a lot of risk to it. You know, if you're going to report on forward-looking information, it's always been a bit of a conundrum in the regulatory reporting world. But also thinking about how we estimate, how far in the future we estimate. Um, Financial reporting doesn't look quite as far into the future um, as uh, sustainability inherently does. It's about the future. We have a lot of tools for estimation and expectation and measurement around those things. They need to become more sophisticated. That really comes up within the framework in considering risks and how we mitigate that. So that's where you'll see um, risk to quality information, the assumptions that are going into making those estimations. Are we relying, for example, on government data in making those estimations? Um, We know a storm is gonna hit in the next five years, 10 years, 50 years. So, What we do in our publication is say, okay, these are the things you need to consider. Good governance controls oversight is to consider changes that are occurring and how we're going to consider that as part of our risk assessment in the information we're producing. Michael, that's a very good question. Um, And as a a non-attorney, I would offer that uh, I'm much is written and I'm aware there is a safe harbor provision for SEC disclosures on forward-looking information. Um, but the SEC is not the only place that organizations publish sustainability data and other stakeholders may rely upon that to, to an extent to make decisions that are meaningful and can affect an, an organization's financial performance and their strategy and their ability to make objectives. There's a graphic and a section in the document that that I especially like um, on on three attributes of the sustainability reporting and forward-looking information is one of them. The other two are that sustainability reporting compared to financial reporting includes much more narrative and it includes areas where the organization is expected to influence. And just like the rest of COSO, that is porous. Um, Picking on climate for a second, companies may say we we aim to be carbon neutral by 2040 or 2030, or we aim to develop products that are um, useful and amenable for a circular economy or make use of reusable resources. It can't just be a high level fluff promise that people are making decisions on that as to whether to align with you on on business partnering, whether to come to work for you, um, whether to invest seed capital, whether to provide green bonds for you to pursue that. So 
what's behind that? Well, look at the rest of the COSO internal controls framework. Do you have a cross-functional team? Do you have some procedures? Do you have some resources? Are you monitoring progress towards those goals? It can be scalable to use the elements of the COSO control framework as it applies for that particular situation. Just want to add one thing in listening to the conversation and some of the points that Mike and Doug have been raising, and that is we're hearing that the SEC has started issue comment letters on company filings where the 10K or financial reports are providing certain information, and then there's other information around sustainability or ESG in another report, and they might not uh, align so well, and the SEC will be raising this. So one good thing about a good control system, governance, oversight, is to make sure that those objectives align so that internal groups are, um, are speaking cohesively and working to make sure that those objectives, they're not saying two different things or three different things in different places. And the analysts will pick up on that and the SEC more and more. We've covered a lot of ground today. Um, you've all been tremendously informative. Um, do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? Jeff, we'll start with you. Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, it's incredible. Every time I, I speak with this group, I learn uh, I learned something new. So it was a great, great opportunity, uh, such a diverse group. But, you know, when I think back to 2017 uh, and look at some of our recommendations now, they're actually quite similar at a, at a broad strategic perspective. And that's this. Uh, yes, we want, we need and must comply with regulation, uh, arguably even for private and smaller companies that are outside the regulatory uh, boundaries, right? Because we want to be credible. We want to be good citizens. Um, we want to be compliant. We want to maintain and enhance our reputation. Um, and likewise, we want to create long-term value for multiple stakeholders. Well, simply put, we think the COSO frameworks and their integrated, uh, interconnected approach can help. Uh, we suggest not keying in on the regulatory ebbs and flows, meaning the SEC final rule on climate, who knows, might be delayed a bit relative to original timelines, but don't use that as your trigger. Begin to build in the capability or enhance the capability uh, from a business management perspective, risk and control. Um, so that's our encouragement, call to action. Um, there's an opportunity to learn together on this journey. Uh, and we suggest that uh, you use the COSO frameworks as part of that journey toward effective compliance to protect reputation and enhance long-term value for multiple stakeholders. Thank you, Michael. Sherry, your parting thoughts. Yeah, um, I'm going to go back to that notion of trust, accountability, transparency, you know, how much that endures the commitment to ethics, the commitment to being good citizens, and giving information that is indeed reliable when we say, trust me, um, how incredibly important that is today, um, as always, but particularly in today's environment and, you know, uh, allegations, whether legal or 
just reputational on greenwashing and what that means and how we want to get this right. And that means good information and reliability. I would add to that, it ties into thinking about the next generation, which is really what sustainability to a large extent is about. One thing that I'm hearing from professors saying, you know, this is attracting sustainability and business education in particular is attracting the next generation. It's getting them excited that they could be part of the solution. A few years ago, I heard someone say, how can we get anyone from this generation to work, for example, in the energy industry? It's a competition for talent and, as I say, exciting the next generation who has a lot of doubts about um, capitalism. I mean, you could see the um, the surveys, the results, the um, uneasiness, yet this incorporating and using all of our tools toward building a trustworthy and more sustainable world is such a brilliant way to go. I have um, three three comments I would offer. One is just to back up to the beginning of this process. I, I think it's impressive that the COSO board saw fit to authorize this effort. When, when I think about the extent of influence and the reach that the COSO organizations, the member organizations that Jeff listed has, the fact that they saw this as a business issue and a business imperative and authorized the effort, I think that says a lot. Um, the second tip, and maybe the most important tip, is to encourage people to read it, use it, share it with your colleagues, have a book club at your organization, go through it together, start using the same language and, and communicate with each other on, on how to use internal controls and have both the ESG folks, sustainability folks, and the accountant finance folks learn the common language. And I guess my final tip is that that this is a journey. You know, this is not a tick list uh, box, as Jeff mentioned. This is a journey, and all programs will mature over time. And don't underestimate how much effort or how long this will take. But um, the journey will be worth it. Um, you'll, you'll, you can have some fun with it. You can achieve some value. You can do things to add non-financial value to the environment, to the communities you work with, to your customers. Um, it, and look for the value and celebrate those accomplishments. I, I find every place I go, all of my clients, I find pockets of excellence where that can be elevated and, and um, expanded across the organization. And look for the heroes and celebrate your accomplishments. It, it'll happen. That concludes our discussion for today. I would like to thank Doug, Jeff, and Sherry for sharing their thoughts. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. Uh, we look forward to continuing to bring you updates on important ESG, CSR, and business and human rights topics, and also working with many of you. Uh, you can subscribe and listen to Ropes and Gray podcasts wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thank you again for listening.